those people that I've killed, but they were all connected in the same way. In my mind, they all got what they deserved. I thought it was the right thing to do. I guess I am a serial killer, but I guess not your average serial killer. <laughs> Serial killer Gary Ray Bowles was executed 10.58 p.m. Thursday, August 22nd, at Florida State Prison in Rayford. I was among the 29 people who witnessed his death by lethal injection. Bowles murdered six men in 1994, from Florida to Maryland. He ultimately paid for those crimes with his life at the age of 57. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look at some of Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. Today's episode will be about the life, crimes, trials, and death of Gary Ray Bowles, the infamous I-95 killer who vexed local and federal authorities for eight long months in 1994. He was arrested after murdering six people up and down the southeast and mid-Atlantic. His targets were older gay men. My special guest for this episode will be homicide prosecutor Bernie DeLarianda, who attained the death sentence for Bowles, as well as retired Daytona Beach police detectives Tom Youngman and Allison Sylvester. Also joining me will be retired Savannah police captain John Best. Listeners may subscribe to Sun Crime State on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. I also encourage you to leave a review. The brutality, just the, the sheer uh, violence is, is incredible. I've been to too many of these murder scenes or other type of violent crimes where it's incredible how evil, and, and that's what I'm going to call it. I mean, it's just incredible how evil some people either are or how evil they exhibit themselves in, in the manner in which they commit these violent crimes. That was Bernie De La Rianda, a homicide prosecutor with the Fourth Judicial Circuit of Florida. He has prosecuted somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred murder cases during his career, and he's attained death sentences for almost a third of them. One of the worst cases he handled was the November 1994 slaying of Walter Hinton who was the last victim of serial murderer Gary Ray Bowles. De La Rianda, like me, attended last week's execution of Bowles, who spent more than 20 years on Florida's death row. During an eight-month stretch in 1994, Bowles murdered six men. His victims were 59-year-old John Hardy Roberts of Daytona Beach, 39-year-old David Jarman of Wheaton, Maryland, 72-year-old Milton Bradley of Savannah, Georgia, 47-year-old Alverson Carter Jr. of Atlanta, 37-year-old Albert Alcee Morris of Hilliard, Florida, and 42-year-old Walter Hinton of Jacksonville. Bowles was a violent criminal before 1994, but once he got started committing murder, he did not stop until his capture. 
It was a different world in 1994. It was an analog world. Police made calls on hardline phones and relied on fax machines as much as email. The internet was around, but not in that many households. If there was a wanted fugitive on the loose, just about the only places to learn about him or her was on either America's Most Wanted or Unsolved Mysteries. Bowles was profiled on America's Most Wanted at least five times and possibly as many as seven times. Authorities as far south as Daytona Beach and as far north as Baltimore, Maryland were looking for him. He was found hiding inside a labor pool bathroom in Jacksonville Beach. He had been living under an alias. After hours of being questioned by Jacksonville detectives, the KG suspect admitted that he was, in fact, Gary Ray Bowles. Exhausted from being on the run for eight months, he confessed to everything. The trail of violence began March 14, 1994, less than three months after Bowles was released from prison for a robbery conviction. His first victim was John Hardy Roberts, an insurance executive who lived at 504 Vermont Avenue, which was a short walking distance from Daytona Beach's famous boardwalk. Robert's body wasn't discovered until the following afternoon, after a concerned friend showed up at his house. The lead investigator in the case for the Daytona Beach Police Department was Allison Sylvester. The slang of John Roberts was the last case she handled as a detective before being promoted and transferring out of the major case division. She recently sat down and talked to me about this case. Here she is telling a camera crew with A&E what she remembered about Robert's friend finding his body. All of the doors had been locked and the person who actually found the body had to break in through a back window. This wasn't a stranger. This was someone that Mr. Roberts knew. It was around 8 p.m. when Sylvester got the call to go to the house on Vermont Avenue. Here she is telling me what she specifically remembers about that murder scene. And Mr. Roberts was uh, on the floor in front of the couch. And we knew that he'd been there for a little while because it was an older house. It was on the beach side. But there was uh, a stream of blood that ran from Mr. Roberts' body all the way across the living room into one of the, I think it was a bedroom. The things you remember that clearly, I remember that clearly. Sylvester worked the scene along with Tom Youngman, who at the time was making a transition from homicide detective to full-time crime scene investigator. His recollection of that night is almost the same as Sylvester's. Something happened inside the living room. He was on the floor, dead, the victim. I know the house was not leveled because he bled out and he, the blood came from the living room across to the east side of the house into the bedroom there in the front. There's a, a line of blood ran out. Daytona police at the time said Roberts was beaten to death with a blunt object, but declined to be specific. They also said he had been dead for about 12 hours before his body was discovered. The living room was clearly where the murder happened. A marble top table had been overturned. Some food had been flung across the floor. It didn't take Youngman long to figure out what the killer used for a weapon. So I know it was pretty violent. Uh, the coffee table was broken. He 
was on the floor. He had something in his mouth. Apparently got beat with some object. There was some glass on the floor. But I later found out, going through the house, if you come through the dining room, there's a buffet table, kind of a drawers in it, and it's wood, and on top, apparently it wasn't an absolutely clean place, but there was dust on it, and you could tell that something was picked up, it was a square, and something was missing from there. But the lamp that was on the floor, I later checked it out after we did the body and everything, put it back on the table with measurements and lifting it and taking more pictures of it, and that's where the lamp was. There was a lampshade that was removed from the lamp, placed on, I'm not sure if it was another table or the floor, but the lampshade was removed. The broken glass on the floor came from that lamp. Roberts was wearing a sweatshirt top, a pair of slacks, and tennis shoes. It looked like he was on the couch, watching TV and eating, when his killer struck him from behind. I felt that he probably snuck up on him, picked the lamp up, and come up because there was a couch there back towards the dining room and he must have been sitting there and he came up and hit him later when I talked to Gary that's what he said mm-hmm. picked the lamp up and came up behind him and hit him and then he struggled Tom Youngman wouldn't talk to Bowles for another eight months more on that later there was something else about that murder scene that was unusual a towel had been crammed down Robert's throat with so much force that it damaged the victim's larynx Deaths by bludgeoning are obviously brutal by nature, but the degree of overkill at this crime scene was astonishing even to seasoned investigators. Roberts was beaten and choked, and then the killer forced that towel into his mouth. The struggle itself was intense and prolonged. Roberts had clearly fought back, but one of his fingertips had nearly been ripped off during the struggle. In spite of the violence, apparently nobody in that quiet beachside neighborhood heard anything. Police were not called until the next day. Neighbors later told police that Roberts, who was active in the local gay community, entertained guests at his house, and often those guests would stay overnight or even for days at a time. They had seen as many as two different men staying with him during the weeks leading up to his death. A woman who had come home from work around 4 p.m. on March 15th told the Daytona Beach News Journal that she saw a man in his mid-30s casually standing in front of the house, sipping from a mug. He acted as though nothing was wrong. When she walked back out of her house a few moments later, the man was gone. Police would be called to that house hours later. There was something else about that day that Youngman will always remember. Something specific that he told other police officers at the scene not long after getting there. It was an offhand comment, a joke at a time when hardly anyone dared to joke. But in a way, it turned out to be prophetic. We were on the porch and there was a bowl on the table right next to the door and it looked like cereal in it. I like to joke a little bit. You gotta, you can't be, you go crazy if you don't. And I kind of looked at the wall. I said, "Guys, I already solved it for you." What? 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 I said, hmm, "I know what it is. It's a serial killer." Just a joke, but I didn't know it was going to definitely be that, because it was his first murder he did. Yeah. It was kind of odd that, and he put, uh, 
what made me say that. On March 17th, two days after the body was discovered, police released a name to the media, Gary Ray Bowles. They did not name him as a suspect, but behind the scenes, people were drawing conclusions about him. Investigators knew they had to find Bowles, a 32-year-old drifter with a criminal history. Here again is Allison Sylvester. Well, we certainly wanted to talk to him. I mean, there was, there was obviously there was nothing that we had at the time that was the, a direct connection, but that nice calling card that he left with, with his name on it, that, that was helpful. Tell me about that, how you came upon that. It was lying underneath the, the table. It was a parole and probation paper with, the, with his name on it. As you just heard, Bull's parole and probation form with his printed name, signature, and case number was on the floor underneath the tipped-over coffee table. Not only that, but someone had tried to use Robert's ATM card at a bank on Seabreeze Boulevard, a short drive from the crime scene. Police seized the video footage from the ATM camera and compared it to Bull's mugshot. It was a clear match. The hunt was on for Gary Ray Bowles. And while Bowles was sloppy, he still had a distinct advantage. He knew how to live the life of a drifter. He had been one for about half his life. Here is Sylvester talking about the search for Bowles and the technological limitations in police work 25 years ago compared to today. In all honesty, I believe that we took, we took action as quickly as we could considering what we had to wait for. It, nowadays, everything's digital. Um, we had to wait for pictures. You know, we had, to, we had to wait for statements from credit cards. We had to wait for videotapes from other states where he was going through a, a convenience store. So as soon as we had everything that we could to um, have a path, we got in the car and we followed the path. We made it to Nashville. The blue Saturn sedan registered to Roberts was found the night of March 25th, 10 days after his body was found. It was parked just outside Nashville, Tennessee, outside a city public housing complex. Sylvester told me there was no indication to her that Bowles would turn out to be a serial killer. But on April 14th, one month after killing Roberts, Bowles would indeed kill again in Wheaton, Maryland. Bull's second victim was 39-year-old David Jarman. Wheaton is in Montgomery County, a very highly populated suburb of Washington, D.C. Montgomery is by far the highest populated county in all of Maryland. Jarman was murdered inside his apartment. His body was found by a maintenance man. He had been strangled. Police said a sex toy had been crammed into his mouth. The detectives who worked the Jarman case are retired, so I had little luck in fetching more details of that murder when I reached out to the Montgomery County Police Department. But based on what I did find out, the Wheaton murder case had a lot of similarities to the Daytona murder case. Bowles, after killing Jarman, stole the victim's car and credit cards and headed out of town. He checked into a hotel in Baltimore using one of those stolen credit cards. The car was later found abandoned in Baltimore, and the signature on the hotel registration card matched that of Bowles. 
Authorities said Bowles met Jarman at a bar in DuPont Circle, an area in Washington, D.C., that is heavily patronized by gay men. Bowles also had met Roberts at a bar in Daytona Beach, a favorite hangout for gay men. The FBI, which got involved in this case later in the spring after it became obvious that Bowles was a serial killer, would later tell the media that they wanted to question Bowles about several unsolved murders involving gay men across the D.C. area. But no connections were ever made between Bowles and any of those murders. In fact, up until his death, Bowles was adamant that he had confessed to everything. Jarman remains the only known Bowles victim in the D.C. area. Gary Ray Bowles was born January 25, 1962, in Clifton Forge, Virginia. His father, who was a coal miner, died of black lung disease six months before Bowles was born. His mother moved him around a lot to rural areas across Illinois and West Virginia. She remarried more than once while Bowles was a child. Bowles' relationships with his stepfathers ranged from acrimonious to abusive. Police would later say that he had been routinely battered by at least two of them. After a final blow-up with his last stepfather, and after giving up on the hope that his own mother would come to his defense, Bowles left home. He was 14 years old. While on the streets, he was picked up one day by a hitchhiker who offered him money in exchange for a sex act. Needing money, Bowles agreed to it. Then he got some advice from the hitchhiker. Sell yourself to gay men and you'll earn some fast money. While on death row, Bowles agreed to one television interview. Pieces from that interview aired on A&E in 2013 on a docuseries called The Killer Speaks. Here he is in that interview discussing his encounter with the aforementioned hitchhiker. First guy that picked me up hitchhiking when I left home gave me 20 bucks to give me a The guy explained to me that I could go around at different places and have let guys give me oral sex and they would pay me and I could make a lot of money doing that. That's you know how I survived on the street, getting oral sex. I prefer to be with women. Bull's first arrest was at age 17 when he was picked up in Joliet, Illinois on a marijuana charge. After he reached adulthood, his criminal convictions ranged from sexual battery to prostitution. In 1982, at age 20, he was arrested in Tampa on suspicion of beating and raping his girlfriend. In a report related to that case, a Tampa detective wrote, I have never seen a case this bad. I have seen better pictures of victims in a morgue. Here again is prosecutor Bernie Delirianda. She was brutally attacked in the motel room. Uh, I mean, she uh, ended up spending two weeks in the hospital recovering from the beating that he inflicted upon her. Uh, he, you know, he beat her on the head, the face, necks, all over the place. And there was also evidence of bite marks. Bowles was sentenced to eight years in prison for that crime. He served less than three years and was arrested again by authorities, this time in Volusia County on suspicion of robbery and grand theft. He was convicted and sentenced to five years, but only served half of that sentence before being paroled again. 
That was in December 1993. Bowles was interviewed for that A&E show by Victoria Redstall, a writer and true crime documentarian. She corresponded a lot with Bowles while he was on death row. He trusted her enough to sit down with her with the cameras rolling. Her interview was the one used for the Killer Speaks docuseries. Redstall, who was from Southeast England and now lives in Southern California, described to me her impression of Bowles during her interactions with him. He's very unlike what you would think is a typical serial killer. He's very goofy. He doesn't have a high IQ at all. He, uh, he comes across very sweet. And obviously, he's a monster. Part of him is a monster. But the part of him that I got to know, which is the part I like to draw out, is the other side other than the monster. And uh, very gentle, very sweet, very soft, and extremely honest and simple. Very simple. The Washington Post wrote a story about Bowles in June of 1994, after he had committed five of his six murders. The story described Bowles as rugged, handsome, and charming. The reporter also described him as a con artist and a street hustler. Bowles took a lot of pride in his ability to hustle people. He comes across very non-threatening, very sweet, and also good-looking, I would say. And I, I definitely see how he could have smooth-talked these men. And he seems to be very good at being a hustler, because I think that's what he did. He was, he was a prostitute for these men. So he was a bit of a hustler and got money out of them and got a place to stay and stole from them. But I definitely see how any man would have um, been caught up in his charismatic, boyish charm. After murdering victims in Daytona Beach and suburban Maryland, Bowles headed south again. His next stop was Savannah, Georgia. Coming up, you'll hear about the four murders Bowles committed from early May to mid-November 1994. Started talking all crazy and it just got real creepy. It just got to be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna this guy up. combined shit and I just beat the hell out of him stuffed his mouth full of dirt and left him that was Gary Ray Bowles describing how he murdered 72 year old Milton Bradley of Savannah Bradley was a World War II veteran who served in the U.S. Navy he was Bowles oldest victim he had been lobotomized after his war and military service there have been differing media accounts about why Bradley was lobotomized. But here is his younger sister, Joy Warshaw, telling A&E why Milton had such a surgery. He was an operator in the Navy, and he had spinal meningitis, I believe. And before you know it, he didn't even know who he was. Finally, he had a lobotomy, and he became like a little child. Bradley lived off a military pension, and his family members managed his money. He was often seen around town in Savannah. The locals knew him and were warm to him. John Best was a young homicide detective for the Savannah Police Department in 1994. He recently retired from the agency as a captain. Here he is talking to A&E about Bradley and his fateful encounter with Bowles. Milton liked to go to happy hour. He had a very, very narrow, 
narrow little area of the world that he didn't stray from. And Milton would go to a bar called Faces. Bowles wasn't in Savannah for long, maybe a week or two. But while he was there, he hung out at well-known pickup spots for gay men. One of those spots was Faces Tavern, a downtown bar. Bowles charmed Bradley and offered him a ride. Bowles drove the elderly man to a golf course and led him on foot to a utility shed. That is where Bowles savagely beat Bradley, at one point using the lid and tank of an abandoned toilet to strike him. To suffocate him, Bowles grabbed fistfuls of dirt and leaves and stuffed them into his mouth. The slang of Milton Bradley was John Best's first murder investigation after being promoted to the major case unit. I was in the office, and I think I was up next in rotation, which is, there were already two other detectives there. So it wasn't a, a long drive from downtown to the golf course, and a short walk around to the back of the maintenance shed where Milton Bradley was laying on his, on his, on his back. Best knew who Milton Bradley was. A lot of people who lived and worked in downtown Savannah knew who he was. There was a lot of trauma evident, but even by the clothing, and I think they found an insurance card that one of the primary officers did. You pretty much knew who it was. So tell me about him. He was pretty well known around town, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, he had, he had some... Uh, some issues from being injured in the war and then having a lobotomy, but he was a nice person. Matter of fact, sometimes too nice, handing out too much money to some of the street people that would hit him up for loans. He would sit in the park, feed the pigeons. Um, he liked to pop into happy hours along River Street in downtown Savannah. Uh, never bothered anyone. Best's first case would be the biggest of his career. It was big not only because of who the killer was and who was murdered, but also because of the uniqueness of the crime scene. It was unique in terms of where it was and how horrifying it was. Milton was wearing uh, a shirt, a tie, pants. His pockets were pulled and pulled down. That was one of the most obvious things right there if you're looking for, for pin down robberies, one of the motives. Pockets pulled out. There was a lot of trauma to the face, the head, there was a broken toilet lid around. And on the wall, and this turned out to be a key part later, you could see scuff marks or abrasions where there was some type of struggle. And, and, and this is an older shed, the paint's peeling off, and you have uh, lateral marks or horizontal marks, but you knew something happened right there. Um, then you have the dirt and leaves. The dirt and leaves, you, you don't know until the autopsy. You can see them in the mouth, and you're, you're pretty confident that they're there. The autopsy proved that there was much more than I thought at first. Um, you know, it, picture an old maintenance area, some discarded stuff completely knocked over, dirt picked up, signs of a good struggle, a vigorous struggle. Daytona investigator Tom Youngman seemed to prophesize about John Hardy Roberts being murdered by a serial killer, but he did so in a way that was tongue-in-cheek. Best, on the other hand, was drawing a conclusion based on evidence and instinct. His colleagues took him about as seriously as Youngman's colleagues, except only one of them was joking. You had a feeling right away, even though you were new at this job, that this may have been the work of a serial killer. Why do you think that? He was found outside of his footprint of you know where where he 
where he traveled. He didn't have a car. I'd never seen him use a bus. Um, he received a stipend from his, his brother, his family. For him to be out there, somebody had to... He, that was engineered, and it wasn't engineered by Milton Bradley. Then we started getting tips phoned in, um, or phoned in from, from members of the community. Hey, this 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 strange guy showing up in the gay community. I mean, that this that evolved over a couple of hours, but nonetheless, they were very, they were they were within the first twenty four hours of the investigation. But that that the, the key there was the geography of where he was at. He somebody had to put him there, and I didn't I didn't feel like that person was from the Savannah community. The you also said the dirt in his mouth and in his throat and other things like that were bona fide signs that this could be the work of a serial killer. This was yeah, a signature. I, I inherited one thing from my father, and that's reading a lot of books and a lot of books about police work. This is pretty much the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And when I saw saw the dirt and, and the term signature popped into my head, I don't know how why it did, but it, it was it was there. And then coupled with later getting information about. A person using various names, saying he's from various locations, being in the community for several days. Last, last eventually, we found out last scene with Milton Bradley. It all started to piece together. In this case, Milton Bradley was not murdered in his home, and he didn't have anything that Bowles could steal. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a credit card. He never carried a lot of cash around. But Bowles still managed to leave town and remain on the lam. Eight days later. He killed again, 250 miles northwest in Atlanta. His fourth victim was 47-year-old Alverson Carter Jr. One of Carter's closest friends in Atlanta was Lisa Bettany, now a hairstylist in Kingsport, Tennessee. The two met while they worked in the restaurant business. Carter was Bettany's boss for years, but their friendship superseded their working relationship. Bettany wouldn't get married until after Carter's death, but she had made up her mind while Carter was still alive that he would be the man she would ask to walk her down the aisle on her wedding day. That's how close they were. He had a lot of character. He had a great sense of humor. He was very intelligent. He was a world traveler. He could be, he could put on a little bit and be sort of a, what's the word? be trying to be a little upper crust you know but there was some truth behind that as well he would uh once every couple of years he would travel around western europe and he did things like he would have his tuxedos uh custom made in edinburgh scotland things like that but he was uh he was really professional he was a gourmet he knew a lot about food and wine and he was he was just very interesting but not uh not too stuffed sure to be able to let his hair down and have some fun. Carter was stabbed to death in his home. His body was found by his brother on May 13th, five days after Mother's Day. Carter's brother called Patini to tell her the news. Straight out of his mouth, he said, I, I found Al, uh, he's been murdered. And of course, I, I, was, I, I was like, what? You know, you have to hear it a couple of times because you just, that's not something you hear. Um, but he, um, he said that, that no one had heard from Al in a couple of days. And so it was, his mother had not heard from him, which was very unusual. So she asked uh, Al's brother 
why don't you go check on your brother? So he did. He went and he has a, had a key and he let himself in. And he said the moment he walked in, uh, he knew he knew that somebody was not alive in, in the condo. Carter's brother made the gruesome discovery in the upstairs bedroom. Police were called, evidence was collected, and the body was removed. But eventually the home was turned over to the Carter family. They had to clean the mess. It was traumatizing. Bettany was there. Al's mother insisted she, she wanted she wanted to, to go over there. And it was a mess. <clears throat> and I think mainly because he had laid there for several days, um, the, the carpet was, had, you know, it was seeped with, uh, with blood. And uh, so his brother told Al's mom, let me go over there and straighten up a few things before you come over. And so I did not want to see it myself. Uh, but just waited for uh, Al's brother to, you know, take a take a cutting tool, and he and he pulled up the worst part of the carpet to throw it away. Bettany talked in more detail about what Carter's brother did after he entered the condo. As soon as he walked in the house, because of the the the, the, the smell of decay, he said, "I I, I knew I knew." in a second that something terrible had happened and that he sort of went into a, an auto mode. He said, I, I looked in every room like on purpose. I looked in all the rooms where I knew I wouldn't find him first. And then finally, uh, Al was in his bedroom and he was, uh, he was wrapped up in a sheet. Um, I think a, a towel had been stuffed in, into his mouth. And you could, I guess there were but some light, bloody footprints leading away from the body. But Bowles had taken like business, white business envelopes and laid them on top of each uh, step, which I don't know, just the odd an odd thing to do but and there were uh, you could see where it looked like he'd left in a hurry this is the, the, the condo was two floors and the bedroom was upstairs and there were bloody handprints that looked like you know it, he ran down the stairs and was balancing himself against the walls to hurry up and get out of there after the carpet was cut up and disposed of, Bettany arrived at the condo with Carter's brother. She saw the bloody handprints on the walls. She mentioned to me that she was shocked at the amount of blood that was left on the walls. She saw where crime scene technicians had dusted for fingerprints. The murder weapon was a chef's knife that belonged to Al Carter. It was the only one of Bull's murder scenes that involved a knife. While the case was active, people close to Carter had no clue who the murderer was. If police knew, they didn't tell them. Was it someone they knew? Was it a burglar? Was Al Carter living a double life they didn't know about? Bettini still remembers a specific phone conversation she had with one of Carter's friends. Then one of Al's friends who lived in Alexandria told me 
that Al had called him and said, met this guy, and he's fixing things around the house, but I, I, now I want him to leave, and I can't get him to go. Bowles had been staying with Carter, just like he had been staying with John Hardy Roberts. He would do the same to his next two victims, gain their trust, and convince them to let him stay with them for a while. Bowles tried to steal Carter's vehicle, which also was a trademark move of his, but the car had a keyless entry system. But once again, Bowles figured out a way to leave town. He headed south to Nassau County, Florida, which borders the Florida-Georgia line along the I-95 corridor. That's where he met his fifth victim, Albert Alcy Morris. He met Morris at a Jacksonville gay bar. He also stayed with Morris for a while before killing him. He gave me a place to stay in exchange. He wanted me to help him fix his roof on his trailer. Morris was murdered May 19th, six days after Carter was killed. Morris, like the rest, fought for his life while Bowles attacked him. Bowles used a marble dish to attack Morris. He also shot him. Then a towel was stuffed into his mouth. Like with Carter, it was a family member who discovered Morris's body. In that case, it was his parents who found him. Bowles came upon something inside Morris's home that was useful to him. Not the keys to his car, not a credit card, but a birth certificate and a social security card of a man known to Morris, a man by the name of Timothy Whitfield. Police never disclosed how Whitfield knew Morris or why his identification was in Morris's bedroom closet, but it was a goldmine discovery for Bowles. He had everything he needed to create an alias. He used that birth certificate to obtain a driver's license under the name Timothy Whitfield. Bowles lived as Timothy Whitfield for the next four months. He got a place in Jacksonville Beach and earned money through a local labor pool. He even got arrested a couple times. At least one of those arrests was for something that the actual Timothy Whitfield did. But Bowles was so hellbent on keeping the ruse going that he quietly and cooperatively served those days in jail on Whitfield's behalf. Tom Youngman, one of the Daytona detectives investigating the Roberts murder, was flabbergasted when he heard later that Bowles was in custody twice, and yet no one in Jacksonville had connected him to any of the murders he had committed. You know, when we learned that he used the assumed name Timothy Whitfield, I know that came up, and he was arrested twice, I believe, but was able to get out. I don't know whether it was a mistake on somebody's part or just didn't see it. You know, you do fingerprints, but I don't know what their policy is on drunks or anything. When they, do they fingerprint everybody? I don't know. So that was surprising and disappointing that he was caught twice. Yeah, they had him. We would have stopped it. Bowles killed one more time. His last victim was 42-year-old Walter Hinton, a floral designer he had met in Jacksonville Beach. Hinton had a sister. Gay Logan. She was interviewed by A&E. Portions of her interview were released as outtakes, which are available on YouTube. During her interview, Logan described meeting Bowles for the first time. Her brother introduced him as Tim. I met him 
when Tim and my brother came to my home and they came in and they had a sandwich and we talked. I thought he was very nice. I thought he was very, he was a very clean guy. I just thought he was a very nice guy. Well, he was very charming and he was very nice looking, you know, to the point I even asked my brother, I said, now what's his name? <laughs> but little did I know. Earlier, you heard Lisa Bettini remember a call from a friend who had had a conversation with Al Carter just before he died. The friend heard Al tell him that he had a stranger staying with him in his house and he wanted to get rid of him. Logan had a similar conversation with her brother before he died. My brother called me and told me that he didn't think that this Tim was really what he pretended to be. He said that he was bringing different women in there and alcohol. My brother told me that he just couldn't take all that mess and he was gonna ask him to leave. I just really felt I knew something was wrong, but I just couldn't figure out what it could be. Hinton's body was found first by Logan's husband. Here she is describing how he saw it first and how he tried to prevent her from seeing it. My birthday was that Friday, and we had made plans to meet at the Outback, and he never showed up. I went by his home, and the lights were on. My husband went through the window, and I was banging on the door. He opened it and started pushing me back. But I did get past him. Hinton was attacked while he was sleeping. Here is prosecutor Bernie Delirianda describing the murder. He ended up telling Bowles that he had to leave. And as a result of that, Mr. Bowles decided to brutally murder uh, Mr. Hinton. I mean, the manner in which he he murdered uh, Mr. Hinton is just really outrageous, really um, heinous. And and the manner in which he, you know, stepped outside, thought about the murder, waited for uh, Mr. Hinton to be asleep on the bed. Bowles went outside, grabbed a, a, I think it was like 40 pounds, a a concrete uh, stepping stone, came back into the bedroom and just dropped it on uh, Hinton's head. And Hinton had, uh, he had actually two mattresses. And so as a result, the blow, while impact uh, in terms of the head, he was still conscious. He didn't die from that. And then Bowles then went and and suffocated him by uh, brutally uh, putting, he first put in, I believe, some tissues. And then he also put in some, um, put in a rag, uh, uh, making sure that Hinton died. After staying in the home for a few more days... Bulls wound up leaving Hinton's place with the victim's watch, stereo, car, and wallet. Only this time, Bulls did not leave town, and police finally caught up to him. Bulls didn't feel the urge to leave this time. Not long before Hinton was killed, Bulls was seen on television by someone he knew. That person was watching America's Most Wanted. Here again is Bulls describing to Victoria Redstall how he avoided arrest. I was living at a, a rooming house there in uh, Jacksonville Beach. Paid $50 a week for rent. 
the landlord, the guy that I was renting the room from, seen me on TV. And he called the police. The cops came, it was like three o'clock in the morning. They kicked my door down and they, you know, questioned me. Searched my room. I showed them the Timothy Ronald Whitfield ID. And they let me go. I figured, well, they'll, they're not gonna catch me now. So I figured I was in the clear. <laughs> it was around that time that the FBI and others discovered that Bowles was the likely suspect in the murder of Alverson Carter Jr. in Atlanta. Lisa Bettini remembers when one of Carter's neighbors saw Bowles featured one night on America's Most Wanted. Yeah, this is like October, November of 94. And uh, David was uh, on the telephone and it was on the America's Most Wanted program. And they showed Bowles. And he said he threw the phone down and ran to the television to turn up the volume. And uh, said, I know that guy. I met that guy. Just one time, I think. And so he called, you know, the the number that they uh, showed on the program. If you have any information, call this number. So I assume that bit of information contributed to them, to the police being able to you know, add another piece of the puzzle together. After Bowles murdered Walter Hinton, the victim's sister, Gay Logan, told authorities that her brother had a roommate named Tim, who worked at a labor pool in Jacksonville Beach. Investigators ran names Tim and Timothy through their computer and then eliminated all but those who worked at labor pools. That left them with just a single name, Timothy Whitfield. On November 22nd, Two days after Hinton's body was discovered, police showed up at the labor pool and found their suspect hiding in the bathroom. Bowles was brought in and questioned for hours. He made up stories that detectives didn't believe, so they kept pressing him. J.P. Collins, a detective with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office who was now retired, described to A&E the moment Bowles broke down and revealed to him his true identity. He started telling me details. I believe it was about picking up his clothes, a reason to come back to the trailer, and it wasn't correct. It wasn't what he had told me before. And that's when I stopped him and I said, stop. I told you not to lie to me. Don't lie to me and tell me the truth. At that point, his demeanor changed drastically. He came forward, was about a foot from my face, and he says, you want the truth? I'll tell you the truth. I'm Gary Ray Bowles. That's who I am, Gary Ray Bowles. He's sunk down in the chair, and he said, I'm glad it's over. I'm glad it's over. It was over. The eight-month manhunt ended in that interview room in Jacksonville. Investigators said a defeated Bowles told them, quote, It's time. I want the killing to stop. I'm either getting six life sentences or the electric chair. Jacksonville authorities outside the interview room celebrated after realizing they had just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. Bowles was on that list for a mere three days before his arrest. 
Victoria Redstall remembers talking to Bowles about that moment in his life, when he finally surrendered and spilled his guts to detectives. Being on the run and looking over his shoulder had become too much for him. He was on FBI's 10 most wanted list, so he was quite proud of that. And he was proud of being uh, evading arrest for so long. But you could only do it so long before you lose your mind. So part of him was resigned to the fact that now I can just let go and finally I'm caught. But again, he is the, he's got a part of him that is quite serial killer-like, and that is to try to escape as long as you can, try to be free as long as you can. But when it's all over, it's all over. And he resigned to that fact. Detectives in Jacksonville called their colleagues in Daytona Beach, Nassau County, Atlanta, Savannah, and Montgomery County. They also called the FBI. Among those reached was John Best in Savannah. Special Agent Dennis Reagan, who he worked closely with on the case, was the one who gave him the news. I was asleep. I would worked late the night before. It was in the afternoon. Dennis Reagan called me. He was talking really fast. I think I told him to calm down and quit. You know, they call Gary Bowles. And I was like, Dennis, don't don't mess with me. I'm going to go back to sleep. No, I already talked to your lieutenant. I'm going to come pick you up. We're going to Jacksonville. I said, run that by me again. So I talked to him. I put the phone down. I called into the office. And the secretary said, yeah, they got him. You're going to Florida. So you had to get out of bed and get ready and maybe even pack a bag and go. Exactly. And then we uh, were trying to we drive to Florida. I had to tell Dennis to use the blue light and the siren in the unmarked car. Driving down there, one of the local news outlets saw us, pulled up next to us and motioned, can we follow you? And so you have to get in behind us. Bowles was interviewed around the clock by detectives from various jurisdictions. John Bess was one of those detectives who sat face-to-face with Bowles. I tried to, we tried to keep it as... I'm going to say low-key as possible, because you, as soon as you got there and saw the activity outside of JSO, and then you went inside, you could feel the, the tension in the air. You, you, knew, you knew something big was going on. But we went in, um, we addressed it professionally, um, got his rights out of the way. You know, he was advised of his, of his rights. And we started uh, with Milton Bradley and listed a number of details from there. Um, the, the thing about the interview, it drove poor Dennis crazy because Dennis didn't smoke. I smoked and Gary Bull smoked. And, you know, way, the way to build affinity with your suspect, hey, let's take some of my cigarettes or do whatever. We were, we were chain-smoking teens, and poor, poor Dennis had to step out of the room a couple of times. Also waiting in line to speak to Bowles was Tom Youngman of the Daytona Beach Police Department. By the time Bowles was arrested, Allison Sylvester had transferred out of the major case unit, so Youngman and another detective were tasked with interviewing Bowles. I questioned him about homosexuality. I said, are you? You have these guys, you find these guys, older guys, easy targets? And he just said, I'm not homosexual. And he had a girlfriend, supposedly. And I think that's the beginning with it, with John Roberts saying, you know, you're going to have her, I don't want you in here. Get out. But he said that they only perform act on him, and he never did them. I said, well, that's homosexual. He said, no. I said, then what are you if you're not a homosexual? I'm a hustler. Because that's what he would do. He'd pick up these old guys and befriend them and move in and they would pay him for the acts and, and make money. 
That was Bull's life for a while, bouncing back and forth between being a straight boyfriend and being a bar-hopping hustler of gay men, and eventually becoming a killer of gay men. Back in Daytona, Allison Sylvester wasn't aware of the whole story. The Roberts murder case was the last one she handled. She didn't keep up with the case after her transfer and knew nothing about his fugitive status. She didn't see those segments on America's Most Wanted. So when she was told that Bowles had been caught and that he had killed five other victims, she was shocked. It was Tom Youngman who called her and told her everything. I'm pretty sure it was just a lot of cursing. That would have been my standard response to uh, um, that's what I'm remembering because I remember sitting at my desk. I remember sitting at my desk when he called me. Um, you learned everything during that phone call that he was caught and that he killed a bunch of people. Yes, that he was a serial killer. Yeah. yeah. So that was a lot to take in. Yes, it was. Bowles actually had a serious girlfriend not long after his release from prison in 1993. Her name was Mary Long, and the two had met at an all-male review. It didn't take long before they started living together in an apartment on Fairview Avenue in Daytona. He was in that relationship when he met John Hardy Roberts, his first victim. Bowles prostituted himself to Roberts while he was still with Mary Long. Bowles was smitten with Long. Reports indicate that Long left Bowles suddenly after discovering he was hustling gay men. Bowles also told detectives that Long was pregnant with their child, and she aborted that child. From that moment on, he harbored a hatred for gay men. In his mind, it was their fault that Long aborted that baby. Long was interviewed by the Daytona Beach News Journal after Bowles was arrested. She described him as the kindest and easiest person to live with. She went on to say that he was never violent with her. He never showed any signs he could be that way. She told the News Journal, quote, He was the sweetest man I had ever been with in my life. In May 1996, just before he was scheduled to go to trial, Bowles shocked prosecutors when he pleaded guilty to killing Walter Hinton. The judge accepted his plea the next day. The state attorney's office still proceeded as planned to pursue the death penalty against Bowles. Bowles' sentencing hearing was in July of that year. Bernie DeLirianda was the lead prosecutor. One point that DeLirianda hammered home with jurors was that Walter Hinton, along with Bowles' other victims, fought hard for his life. It was a valiant fight uh, that, unfortunately, each of these victims lost. But it was a fight to the death. I mean, these victims uh, were put in, in unexplainable pain, and they suffered. And, and, you know, it was not an instant death. It is not like somebody getting shot and just dying from that gunshot. Uh, these type of, of murders that Gary Ray Bowles did uh, force the victim uh, to, uh, in some way, attempt to defend themselves. And so each of them, as best they could, fought and attempted to um, win, attempted to live. I mean, it's a struggle for life. Valiant fight. I mean, it is, a, it is one in which the victim is aware of their impending death. And obviously anybody who is put in that situation does not want to die. They want to live. 
And unfortunately, in this case, and in all these cases, uh, the victims uh, lost that battle. Every victim had fought back. Every victim had something crammed down his throat. Every victim was tricked into trusting Bowles. Bowles' defense attorney conceded that his client murdered Walter Hinton, but he asked jurors to spare him in large part because of his alcoholism. Bowles had abused alcohol since he was 10 years old. The day he killed Hinton, he had been drinking all day. That did nothing to sway jurors. They returned with a verdict and recommended death by a 10-2 vote. At that time, juries in Florida only needed a majority to recommend death. Among those who sat in the courtroom and watched were Hinton's sister and mother. His sister, Gay Logan, described to A&E Bowles' behavior toward her in the courtroom. At the trial, when they sentenced him to death, he showed no feelings whatsoever. And he turned around to go back to the table with his lawyer and he winked at me. I could not believe that there was no more remorse than that. And how could he be flirting with me after something like that? I never thought I could be fooled by character or judging someone else. And this man totally had me blindsided. Hinton's mother, Norma Cole, told the Florida Times Union after the sentencing hearing was over that the defendant's pleas for leniency based on his rough upbringing should not have been taken seriously. Cole said, quote, I'm sorry the abuse affected him in the way it did. I'm sorry anyone has difficulty like that in life. But I haven't had such an easy life either. Bowles pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of his other two Florida victims, John Hardy Roberts and Albert Morris. Authorities in Georgia and Maryland declined to prosecute him for the slayings there. In 1998, the Florida Supreme Court overturned Bull's death sentence, saying De Rionda was wrong to enter into evidence the notion that Bulls had a hatred for gay men. So in 1999, another Duval County jury listened to more evidence and testimony related to the Hinton slang. This time, the deliberations ended sooner, and they came back unanimous in favor of death. Bowles was returned to death row, where he would stay for another 20 years. Coming up, the execution of Gary Ray Bowles. Part of you uh, wish you were there to watch the execution? I've wondered about that, you know. Um, I'm I'm still not sure. I don't... don't, uh, I think that I would be interested in Bull's execution because of what you've shared with me and what I remember about Mr. Roberts not having family. If there wasn't going to be anyone representing him, um, I, I would have liked to have been present to, to do that. Allison Sylvester did not attend last week's execution of Gary Ray Bowles. No family members of John Hardy Roberts were in attendance, and no family members of any of Bowles' victims were in attendance. 
Most of the 29 spectators were retired law enforcement officers, mainly those who investigated the Henton murder. The victims Bowles killed had no spouses or children. Their parents were either already elderly or deceased in 1994. They had siblings, but many of them have since passed away, like Gay Logan. Henton's longest surviving relative in his immediate family was his mother. She died in January. Bowles himself didn't have many people left in his life. During his last day, no one other than his lawyer came to see him. Michelle Gladdy, a spokeswoman with the Florida Department of Corrections, confirmed that to the media on the day of Bull's execution. Did he meet with any family members today? Did he have any contact with his spiritual advisor after the press conference that you gave earlier? He did not. He was last seen by a spiritual advisor yesterday, but did not have any family visits or a spiritual advisor visit today. Um, his last visitor was his attorney. Bull's relationship with his mother was almost non-existent the entire time he was on death row, according to one of Bull's closest confidants, who spoke to me over the phone last week. For 19 years, Bull's and his mother did not communicate. Bull's laid much of the blame of his wayward life on his mother, who in turn struggled with the thought of having a son who was a serial murderer. A few days before his execution, Bulls and his mother spoke to each other on the phone for the last time. Bulls' last meal consisted of three cheeseburgers, french fries, and bacon. In lieu of a last statement, Bulls chose to handwrite a two-page letter articulating his thoughts. Here is part of what Bulls wrote in that letter. I want to start by saying that I'm so very sorry to all of the family and friends of Mike Hinton. I never wanted to kill him, and I'm sorry for all the pain and suffering I have caused. I hope my death eases your pain. I want to tell my mother that I am also very sorry for my actions. Having to deal with your son being called a monster is terrible. I'm so very sorry. Bowles went on to thank his attorneys, saying he was always appreciative of having such a strong group of fighters on his side. He also thanked the warden at Florida State Prison for treating him with respect, particularly during the 73 days he was on death watch. He said that helped him feel human again. Bowles went on to say, quote, I never wanted this to be my life. You don't wake up one day and decide to become a serial killer. Bowles only mentioned the Hinton killing. He did not mention his other five victims. I was among four media members who witnessed the execution in Rayford. It was me, a reporter with the Associated Press, a reporter with WJXT News 4 in Jacksonville, and a radio newsman out of Sewanee County who has witnessed dozens of Florida executions dating back to the 1980s. Bowles' execution was scheduled for 6 p.m., so an hour prior to that, we boarded a white van and drove from the designated media area to the inside of Florida State Prison, where we waited inside an inmate cafeteria until we got the word that the execution was going forward. The last condemned killer in Florida was executed around 6.55 p.m., so the wait for him wasn't very long. 
we all concluded that ours wouldn't go long either. But that was up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was the last court to decide on Bowles' final appeal. His attorneys requested a stay based on mental disability. It was a claim that was rejected by everyone. A mentally incompetent person, after all, wasn't going to successfully avoid capture for more than eight months. Here again is John Best. One of the key things in there where it shows he's thinking and he's planning ahead is taking the identity of Timothy Whitfield, taking that birth certificate, and then getting, getting a photo ID issued with it and some food stamps at the time. So that's why I think those actions that show some type of organization, even though not great organization, some types of looking for a means to get away and a means to survive and a means to go on to the next place to do whatever I'm going to do, meet whoever I'm going to meet, that requires some thought. The Florida Supreme Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta all rejected the claim of incompetence. So we all sat down in that cafeteria thinking the wait would be about an hour. But one hour turned into two hours, then three hours, then four. The $1 bills we all brought were being used to buy snacks and sodas out of the machines, and we were all starting to run out of ones. Prison officials took pity on us and brought in some bottled water and sandwiches from Publix. We waited for more than five hours before the call finally came in. The U.S. Supreme Court did not grant a stay. Although Justice Sonia Sotomayor did have critical things to say about the state's death penalty system, suggesting there were some issues that had to be resolved in the future. But in the end, the state got the go-ahead to execute Gary Ray Bowles. Me and my colleagues walked through a lockdown prison, got into another van and rode another 300 yards or so into the heart of Florida State Prison. We got out, entered a small building, and stood in line in a stairwell. Then a door opened, and we were led inside a bright room with white walls. We sat in the last row. The front two rows were already filled with spectators. Among them was Bernie de Rianda. We waited for up to 15 minutes for the curtain in front of us to be raised. The air conditioning unit on the wall kept humming. The thermostat was set at 69 degrees. There was a prison official within arm's reach of the switch on the wall that turned it on and off. During the wait, nobody was allowed to speak. The curtain was finally raised. The lights in the viewing room remained on. Bowles was lying with his feet closest to the plexiglass window. Those of us in the viewing room could see his face. Only Bowles' head and arms were exposed. The rest of his body was under a white sheet. He was strapped to a gurney. Three officials were in the room with him. One was the Florida Department of Corrections, while the other two were with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. One of them was on the phone, which is a direct line to the governor. He hung up the phone, and the prison official in the viewing room flipped the switch to the air conditioner. The intercom was turned on. The man with the earpiece standing next to Bowles asked whether he had any final words. Bowles referred to his written statement. The execution began at 10.44 p.m. The intercom was turned off, and the air conditioning was turned back on. The injections were administered intravenously. 
and in a separate room. At 10.45, one minute after he received the first of two doses of the sedative, Bowles started taking deeper breaths. He was breathing out of his mouth. It's like he was savoring his last breaths. At one point, it looked like he was murmuring, possibly praying. What he was saying was inaudible, even to the men standing near him. He kept his eyes closed almost the entire time he was awake. When he did open his eyes, he wouldn't make contact with those watching him. After the second dose was given to him, he drifted off to sleep. The man with the earpiece brushed his eyelid with his index finger, then took both hands and pushed down on his shoulders several times. He did that to make sure Bowles was unconscious. Then came the saline injection, and then the two doses of the paralyzing agent. Bowles' breathing slowed. There was one more saline injection, and then came the fatal dose of potassium acetate. After that... Bull's face turned white and his lips purple. His heart and lungs had stopped working. A medical professional emerged from behind a curtain and checked Bull's pupils with a pocket flashlight. Then he used his stethoscope to check for a pulse and a heartbeat. At 10.58 p.m., 14 minutes after the process began, Bull's was pronounced dead. None of the spectators in the room spoke to the media afterward. Here is Lisa Bettini talking to me about how she felt when she got the word that Bowles was dead. For her, it was a mixture of feelings. Well, it, it may sound cliche, but I, I really do have closure with it. You know, and I mean, the, the whole situation is terrible. I Some people might not like this, but it's my the way I truly feel and I mean I feel bad for Gary Bowles uh there's no winners you know but when I yeah when I did read that the day was finally coming you know I was very had a lot of anticipation and some uh anxiety when I read that at 1058 he was gone I felt better you know, I thought, okay, it's over and done with. There's nothing else to talk about or uh, about it anymore. And uh, I'm glad it's over. You know, it was a horrible situation. You know, it's one it's one thing when you hear about a friend or a loved one who's been in a terrible wreck or they, or, you know, have a terminal illness. But, you know, not only to be taken, you know, to be murdered, but to be murdered by a serial killer. I mean, I felt like I was in a movie, you know. So now that it's over, I'm, I'm good. Bernie De La Rianda didn't talk to me until the following morning. Over the phone, he told me that Bowles died in a controlled environment. He died humanely, just as the law requires. He was put to sleep and then administered the fatal medication. By comparison, De La Rianda said, his victims died violently and horrifically. Tom Youngman and John Best both thought that death was the appropriate sentence for Bowles. I do believe, a little late, but you know, I, I do believe in the death penalty. I just wish it was quicker. 
killed six people. He can prove it without a doubt. It's time. You should have done this before, though. You think this is a just sentence? I do. How come? He killed six people. He knew this was coming for a while, but even in, in the years since he's been sentenced, well, while he's been in custody, he can wake up every morning. He can breathe. He can have an argument with another inmate. He can eat breakfast. He can drink. He can do something. He can get some smuggled contraband. He can do all kinds of stuff. He's still alive. The victims don't have that right. I attempted to interview Bowles before his execution, but he did not respond to my letter. Bowles always seemed resigned to his fate. He told detectives 25 years ago he knew he was facing an execution. While in court, Bowles was calm, collected, and maybe even a little cocky. Even his jurors deliberated on a death sentence recommendation. During his only television interview... Gary Ray Bowles didn't seem to question or refute his death sentence or show any anxiety about it. It's the way it is. What's done is done. And I guess soon it'll be my time to, to go. Bowles was the 99th condemned killer on Florida's death row executed since the U.S. Supreme Court restored the death penalty in 1976. Only Texas, Virginia, and Oklahoma have executed more. Thank you for listening. Check back in a couple weeks when I will profile a case out of Altamont Springs. In 2004, 34-year-old Susan Perkins was abducted by a masked armed man and locked in the trunk of her car. She died during a daring escape attempt. Fifteen years later, that case remains unsolved. All that and more on the next episode of Sun Crime State. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. 